Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We will still work our way through this passage. I don't know. I thought we may make it through the end. I may just whip right through this today because it is what we have to deal with today is one. Jerry says, no, (laughs) ain't going to happen. It's one long sentence and one long prayer that Paul gives us here. And so it is, you hate to split it up. But, um, well, we'll just see what happens. If I don't make it, then that's fine. We we can always finish it. Uh, So, beginning with uh, verse 15, let's, let's read through the end of the chapter. He says, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints... Seize not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling. And this is kind of a, always seemed like an awkward sentence here. And what, what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? But you you recognize that that you may know is the context of all of these phrases. So is that that you may know what is the hope of his calling, that you may know what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and that you may know what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world or this age, but also in that which is to come and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for blessing us with your word. Thank you for the confidence that we have in your word because of the Holy Spirit, which indwells us, indwells every saint. We pray, Father, that you would grant us now an answer to this prayer that that Paul prayed for the Ephesian believers, that it would be true of us also, that we might have that enlightenment and that spiritual wisdom and knowledge that we need, Father, to complete our faith, to be found in that day pleasing in your sight. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In uh, verse 15, which is just a continuation of this long extension of, of what Paul has been doing here in the first chapter, he has brought to us, as we've talked about, 
doctrine, teaching concerning what God has done for us in choosing us, in um, giving us all of these things in Christ. But now he turns in verse 15 and says, wherefore? So we find that in view of all that he's been teaching us so far, Paul has some other things to say regarding the application of this doctrine, this knowledge, into our lives. And of course, you know as well as I do that doctrine without having it in our lives is worthless and unproductive. And it doesn't accomplish what God intended for it to do for each and every one of us as a believer. So consequently, Paul's just simply telling us, wherefore, in view of all of this that we have brought to your attention and understood to these believers in Ephesus up to this point, now here is what ought to flow out of that doctrine and out of that teaching. And it's this. Wherefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints. Now, it's interesting to me that Paul says it this way because Paul spent probably more time at Ephesus on his missionary journeys than at any other church. Some three years there. And you remember the heartwarming episode that took place in Acts chapter 20, and I say heartwarming, it was heart-wrenching also for Paul and the elders when they met him because they wept over Paul and hugged him and cried over him because they knew they wouldn't see him anymore. But yet the testimony of this church reached Paul in the writing of this letter back to them in the hearing of their faith and of their love. And I think that it's intentional, of course, that Paul mentions these two things, faith and love. And I was trying to imagine a church or an individual, a believer, having faith. And the faith that, and I'm talking about faith in the context of what Paul has presented to us without love. And what a dead, lifeless faith it would be. Turn with me back to Matthew chapter 24 for a moment. You know from any amount of messages you've heard or Bible study that you may have done that chapter 24 and chapter 25 concerns the Olivet Discourse, and it concerns the answering of uh, questions that were posed to Jesus by his disciples. And in verse 3, we have those questions where he says, he sat upon the Mount of Olives, and the disciples came unto him privately saying, tell us, When shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the age? Well, you know that we just read back here in Ephesians that Paul's talking about 
the fact that God raised Christ from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenlies far above all created beings, principalities, powers, dominions, whatever. And he says, and above every name, named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And when I think about names being named, in the context of which Paul's writing, I think of Caesar. And I think about what a direct confrontation Paul is bringing to Jesus being Lord as opposed to Caesar being Lord and who they were to give their allegiance to. But you know what? Back here in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus told him in verse 13, excuse me, verse 12, he says, and iniquity shall abound. Because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold or just grow cold, become cold. So when you think about love, back here in verse 15, when he said he heard about their faith and their love unto who? All the saints. Now, all the saints is all the saints. It's everybody. And we saw earlier back in chapter 1 that saints were those who were in Christ. It's everybody who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ and have been placed in him. But you've got to have this connection. A dry, dead faith without a love for the saints just isn't very practical and it isn't very purposeful. And Paul was pleased to hear that they had both. But turn to Revelation chapter 2 because you know again with any understanding of what has taken place in Revelation chapter 2 and when John is writing concerning these seven churches in Asia Minor, of which Ephesus is the first one mentioned in chapter 2. Notice the things he says about this church. Now, if you've got a Bible that has any notes or headings or anything like that in it, you might note that the letter written to the church at Ephesus was written sometime around A.D. 60-61, probably in 61. Most believe, and again, you can turn to your notes at the head of uh, Revelation, you'll see that it was, well, my Bible just says sometime in the 90s. 93 to 96. No, they don't, nobody really, of course, knows just when the book of Revelation was written. It's a little harder to nail down than some of Paul's letters because we have so much more information in the book of Acts regarding his missionary travels. But we're just talking 40 
to 45 years later. 40 years later, for sure. And notice what he says about this same church. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience. That is, your, your willingness to endure or persevere, to tolerate, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. What a church. What a church. All the things that, they, that are com- being commended of them, but in verse 4, of course, we have their downfall. He says, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. What do you imagine would be their first love? Well, it would be pretty easy to say, well, their first love was the Lord Jesus. Well, undoubtedly, that would be the case, except that you got all these commending things here that John is saying about this church, and all positive, wonderful things. But I just wonder if the connection would be made back here in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 15. That they had faith, they had patience, they had endurance, they had works, they were tolerant in certain things that they needed to be, and it was commendable things, but maybe they lost their love for all the saints. And this church is being judged for that in Revelation chapter 2. At the time Paul's writing, of course, they were still very much alive. And they were a spiritual church. You remember in our introduction how we talked about letters, these letters that Paul wrote that had specific emphasis of a spiritual high nature, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. But something happened over the next 40 years, and they lost it. And there's a danger involved. There's a danger for you and I that what can happen to our own hearts and what happened to the believers at Ephesus can happen to us. And it does us no good to have a head filled with knowledge and doctrine and all these wonderful things we know about the Scriptures, and yet we don't love our fellow brethren. I think that context fits very well. I think that's what Paul's trying to tell us. And that we need to be very careful how we speak about those outside our own fellowship. You know, we speak glowingly 
about the love we have for one another here. And we do, and I like it. It's wonderful. But let's don't forget those other brothers also and love them also. Some are not so easy to love. We need to love them all. Well, in view of that, from verse 15, Paul moves on to verse 16 then, in view of this faith and this love, which seems to be the foundation and centerpiece of the church life that Paul is writing to here at Ephesus, this church, he says, I cease not to give thanks to this church for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that is, remembering you, recalling you to mind in my prayers, that when I'm praying, I pray for you. I have a thankfulness and an appreciation and a concern for you believers at Ephesus. We really should be praying for other churches in the same manner and in the same way, especially those that we have knowledge of. We may not like everything that goes on there or maybe some people there that rub us the wrong way, but we still need to love them. In view of all of this, notice what he says then in verse 17. I make mention of you in my prayers that... Well, here's what he prays for. And boy, this is something we can take note of because if we want to know how to pray for a fellow believer, if we want to know how to pray for a sister church, then Paul just follow Paul. Notice what he prays for. And it will give us the things that are uppermost in his mind as to the kinds of things we should pray for. He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may do these things. Give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. That's the first thing. And you'll notice if you have just a, well, and it doesn't even have to be. It depends on the Bible you have. It should be a small s in front of spirit. He's not talking about the Holy Spirit here. Um, It's been what, Mike, I guess, probably two or three or four years ago, we did a full study on the word spirit. I'm talking to Mike here. And we saw many, many places, even in modern Bibles where they've capitalized the word s for spirit when in context it's not the Holy Spirit being spoken of. I think that's, that's the case here. Not speaking of the Holy Spirit, but he's talking about an attitude of mind. To give unto you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. So we know immediately he's not talking about worldly wisdom. We can acquire worldly wisdom all we want. And it will help us to a certain degree to get through life if we acquire some worldly wisdom. 
I mean, we, know, we need to know how to like buy and sell. We need to know how to do our trading, whatever it is. You know, you go into the grocery store, you get in the car, you're buying some property or selling property or you're um, uh, dealing with other people in, in various relations. You need to have some wisdom that, it, 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 you know, it's, it's based on where we live. It's, it's the wisdom of this age. Paul's not talking about that. He's talking about another kind of wisdom. It's it's the wisdom and revelation, he says, in the knowledge of him. Now, if you look at the word knowledge, I'm sure many of you are aware that this is our word epi-knowledge or epinosis. The word epi, if you take your, um, your trusty little preposition sheet, and you look at your piece of cheese, or if you want to look at the circle, whichever one you want, you'll see that the word epi has a line across the top of the circle. Or if you look at the piece of cheese, you'll see a mouse sitting on top of the wedge of cheese. So epi means upon, knowledge upon. So in this context, what is Paul talking about here? This knowledge upon, that you may have a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the upon knowledge of him. Well, it seems to me here that he's talking about that knowledge which we acquire following salvation. Looking back at verses 12 and 13 and 14, we notice there, well, even going all the way back to verse 8, or was it, uh, excuse me, verse 7, where he says, in whom we have, we saw that aorist tense, uh, or or, excuse me, the uh, present tense verb there, we have redemption through his blood according to the riches of his grace, this continuing, ongoing redemption. And we saw down in verse 13, where he says, in whom you also, after that you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that you believed, you were sealed. With that Holy Spirit of what? The Holy Spirit of promise. So I think that in context here, Paul's talking about that full knowledge that God wants us to acquire once we have believed in Jesus Christ as our Savior. And we've mentioned this many, many times that once a person becomes a believer, a Christian, it does us no good to sit back and relax and think, boy, now I've gotten saved. Um, everything is fine, I'm on my way to heaven, and I don't have to worry about another thing. God expects more following that, and and an acquisition of knowledge that he has revealed in his word that we are to acquire. This wisdom and revelation 
This is not a revelation of new things that nobody else knows about. It's very, I think, simple and easy to see in the context of this passage, this revelation Paul is speaking of is things that God reveals to those who are seeking to gain and acquire this knowledge. And he he develops this even further in the next verse when he says, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. And the word understanding there is, is literally, it's the word heart. It's the eyes of your hearts. What could he possibly be meaning there? The eyes of your hearts. Well, we know from other study in Scripture, and we've not really done a a developed study in it, but we've made reference to the fact that heart frequently has reference to that portion of our soul that deals with our mind, our emotions, and our will. And so all he's telling us then is that our eyes, he says, being enlightened. You know, that makes you think back. Look back to Matthew chapter 13 for a second. And there are many places you could go in Scripture to, um, to validate this because it's, it's spoken of by the Lord Jesus Many times in the Gospels, it's, it's recorded there. Isaiah talks about it. Jeremiah talks about it. In Matthew chapter 13, when Jesus was speaking to the disciples in parables, he began at this point to do so. And in verse 13... Well, actually, in verse 10, he says, Why do you speak unto them in parables? And he says in verse 13, in answer to that, he says, Therefore speak I to them in parables, because they, seeing, see not, and hearing, they hear not. I think this is a parallel verse to what Paul is telling us over here in Ephesians about the eyes of their understanding. Eyes to see, ears to hear. And he's talking about having a mind and a heart that that is open to reception of God's truth. Where? In our hearts. How? In our mind? Too many times we stop right there. We think that just acquiring this knowledge is it. But I think the word hearts hearts encompasses our emotions or, or our affections, but also our will. So this knowledge that we gain following salvation ought to be the kind of knowledge that will produce a life change in us. And it'll make us different. I just <laughs> I always go back and I think about John over here. John says, I'm not the man I used to be. <laughs> He's told us that several times. 
And I remember the first time he said it. You know, that's what it's supposed to be. It didn't happen for many years, did it? Many, many years. He was a believer, he said. But then God, God got a hold of his heart. And he says, now I'm not the man I used to be. That ought to be true of every single one of us. If you've been a believer for one year, you've been a believer for 20 years, somewhere along the way, God needs to grip our hearts, the eyes of our understanding being opened or enlightened. And I think Paul could have just added like Jesus did, our ears for hearing, and it affect us inwardly in our soul to make us something other than what we were and what we used to be, even as a Christian, to change us and make us a different person and move us along that path of spiritual growth and spiritual development. Why would that be? Well, he says then, secondly, in verse 18, that ye, ye, all of you, ye is plural, that all of you in the church at Ephesus may know what is the hope of his calling. Now, that's amazing. When did the calling occur? After they were already saved. They were, you know, people all the time want to back up and put calling back before a person became a believer and equate that with God calling them up to the point of salvation and giving them faith to believe so that they could become a Christian. Do something with me here. If you will turn to the right in your Bible, in mine I can only have to turn one page to chapter 4 of Ephesians. Now, in the book of Ephesians, Paul presents his doctrinal portion, his teaching, that is, in the first three chapters. In chapter 4, he moves then into how this ought to affect our life. And notice the very first thing he says in verse 1. Therefore, I therefore, brethren, the, uh, or the, I therefore the prisoner, and then, by the way, it's E-N, I therefore the prisoner in the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation. Now, the word vocation is typically translated elsewhere and in newer translations, calling. Wherewith ye are called. That's something that God does for each and every one of us. Once we become a believer, I'm convinced every single one of us have a calling. Now, we don't all have the same gift. We don't all have the same talents and abilities, but we do all have a calling. All of us fit into God's plan someplace, somewhere, 
And if we wanted to take the time, and we don't, but I wish we could expand on that and talk about our place in the body of Christ. And you know what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, how that we are all members of the body. And just like our physical bodies have many members, and they're all interconnected, and they all function together, so you and I are all members of the body of Christ. And so you may have in your mind that I'm nothing but the little toe in the body of Christ. But that little toe counts. It's not a worthless, useless member of the body. It's a functioning part, and it all belongs. And so, therefore, it does us no good to bewail the fact or bewail ourselves and say, I don't want to say fact, because it's not a fact, well, I will probably end up just pushing a broom around in the kingdom, sweeping up gold dust off the streets of the heavenly Jerusalem. That just doesn't get it. You see, hope of your calling is, I mean, when you stop and think about the hope of your calling, it is a vibrant, expectation that the faith that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ is filled with confidence that what he says he's going to do, he's going to do it. That's the kind of hope we have. And when he says that if you obey him and you walk before him, and when we get to chapters 4, 5, and 6 in Ephesians, we do all these things and act like the things he says we should do and act like, then he's going to fulfill his promise to us. And he's going to tell us, well done. And he says, you, come on up here. I want you to share in the rule of my son in the age to come. And so you have to believe this age is coming to an end, folks, and it is not going to last long. And there's a new age coming, and Jesus Christ is going to come in in such mind-boggling brilliance and glory and appear on this earth to make men shake. Matter of fact, Hebrews tells us the whole earth will shake. What a glorious time it will be for those who are prepared and ready to share in that coming rule. Well, he tells us another thing then, that you may know what is the hope of his calling to have a full confidence in that, but also that you may know what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. We saw earlier back in... um, Verse 11, where he says there, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance. And we saw there that, that, that um, that's an active verb. Excuse me, a passive verb, not, an, not active. It's translated here as if it was an active verb. But, technic, but it's, in Greek, it's passive. 
And it indicates to us or implies then that we are God's heritage or we are God's inheritance. And here he is down here in verse 18 saying the same thing. But what he's implying here is, and what he says, I guess actually he would say explicitly is that we might know the riches, the riches of the glory of his inheritance. We can know it. Now, when you're a babe in Christ, it's pretty hard to know it. And it comes with time. And it comes as we grow in our knowledge of the Lord. I think that's why Peter says in 2 Peter 3, verse 18, but grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, so that we will know those things. You remember the writer uh, of Hebrews says, concerning those who have tasted the powers of the age to come. Wow. How can, can we do it? Can you sit here this morning and say, yep, I sure have. I have actually tasted. I've had a foretaste of what's to come. When did it happen? Well, when I spent time with the Lord in his word, meditating and praying over the verse by verse, phrase by phrase, seeking to understand what he's teaching us and telling us about the Christian life and what is yet to come. And then, of course, your heart just starts going, and it wants to explode because you can't contain it, because you've had a little taste of what's to come. And you can't hardly hold it back. It's just beyond... And sometimes I feel like, why am I saying this over and over and over? We can't, we can't even get up the words to describe not only what it's going to be like, we can't even come up with the words to describe what we felt inside. And I think that's one of the most wonderful things that God has given us as, the, as a gift to us as believers is that individually, As Paul is praying here, he is praying to all of you believers in the church at Ephesus that you would have the eyes of your hearts enlightened. But you see, not all did equally so. Not everybody moves along that same path of spiritual development. And some have not gotten to see the things that others see. That's why when you pick up a a book to read, you know somebody, you can tell before too long who has spent time with the Lord and who hasn't. You can pick up a devotional book. You can pick up a commentary. um, You know, it doesn't hardly matter what. And some commentaries are just as dry and academic as they can be. And they don't, they don't get down here. But then you can pick up others, and you know 
here's a man or here's a woman who's in touch with God. And that's what Paul's trying to lead this church up to. And it's what he's trying to do for us is to tell us and teach us that we need to be in that same place. We need to be in that same position of spiritual development so that we might know the hope of our calling, that we might know the riches of his inheritance in us. I guess I'm not going to make it through. (laughs) Here we are. So we'll have to stop right here and take up the rest of it next week at begin with verse 19. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, indeed, your word is rich. And when we think about the riches of the inheritance of the saints, how vast and how deep and how wide and how full those riches must be. But how we want to just this morning say thank you. Thank you for letting us have the privilege of having a little foretaste, a little bit of wonder and awe at what's to come when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to rule this earth, to call his saints home, and to gather all things together into one in Christ. Lord, let us be filled with the fullness and confidence of hope in him and that we would build upon that knowledge and build upon that knowledge and continue to grow and to mature and to feast on those things that you've given us here so that we might rejoice, so that we might enjoy the company of fellow believers, whether it's here or whether it's another church, whether it's the great or whether it's the small, whether it's the free or whether it's the slave, as Paul says. All are one in Christ Jesus. We rejoice in that, Father, and we rejoice in the goodness that you've given to us in him. For we pray in his name. Amen.